Now on Netflix. Inspired by the unbelievable true story of a fake hitman comes the new movie, Hitman, from Academy Award nominee Richard Linklater. At 96% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, critics are calling Hitman a smart, sexy crime thriller with surprises at every turn. Starring Glenn Powell and Adria Arjona, Hitman. Now playing on Netflix and in select theaters. Rated R. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with a personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Welcome back to Collector's Closet, presented by The Ohio Lottery. Let's discuss my newest prize possession, this new $10 scratch-off, the $500,000 Platinum Jackpot. The best method I've found so far to help it hold its value is to vacuum seal it. This thing cannot get scratched. What's that? Sorry, my producer's telling me the only way it could be worth up to 500 grand is if I do scratch it? Okay, well, in that case, definitely don't overprotect your $500,000 platinum jackpot scratch-offs. Play them. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. Due to the graphic nature of this case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of murder and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Thanks for minding the departure logs. I'll collect the logs for your company, and then we can both turn in for the evening. Very good, sir. Got the short end of the stick, catching CQ duty on a weekend. I don't mind. There's not much to do this time of year regardless. (laughs) That's true. I swear, it's dark outside more hours than it's light in these New York winters. They call it the gloom period for a reason. Luckily, the gloom won't last for long. It'll be finals before you know it. Then we'll be wishing we were back in the gloom period. Well, I'm about ready to hit the hay. Shall we run a quick check of the logs together? Make sure everything's all squared away? Let's see, we've got Anderson, Rogers, Urschel. But hold on. This is strange. What is it? It looks like one member of our company isn't accounted for. Cadet Richard Cox signed out at 1745. But he never signed back in. On Saturday, January 14th, 1950, Cadet Richard Colvin Cox signed out of West Point Military Academy for a seemingly casual dinner. But when Cox never signed back in, that casual dinner started to look a little more sinister. Days passed, then weeks, then months. One thing had become abundantly clear. Finding Richard Cox was not going to be an easy task especially when investigators couldn't answer one very simple but very important question. Exactly who was it that Cox went to dinner with? This is Unsolved Murders, true crime stories on the ParCast Network. I'm your host, Carter Roy. And I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie. This is our first episode on Richard Colvin Cox, a West Point cadet who disappeared from this military academy one winter's day in 1950 and was never seen again. 
You can listen to previous episodes of Unsolved Murders, as well as all of ParCast's other shows, wherever you listen to podcasts. A new episode comes out every Tuesday. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and on Twitter at ParCast Network. Some listeners have been asking how they can help support the show. If you enjoy the podcast, the best way to do that is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. The circumstances in which 21-year-old Richard Colvin Cox disappeared from West Point Military Academy in 1950 were entirely perplexing. Especially considering that at the time of his disappearance, Cox appeared to be a well-behaved, dedicated student with a caring family. He kept his head down, got good grades, and always stayed out of trouble. Cox was born in Mansfield, Ohio, on July 25, 1928. Cox was the youngest of six children, and his father passed away when Cox was only 10 years old. Cox developed an incredibly close relationship with his mother, Minnie, as well as all five of his siblings. After high school, Richard, or Dick as his friends referred to him, enlisted in the U.S. Army and he was transferred to Germany in 1947. Cox must have done well in Germany because he was accepted into the prestigious West Point Military Academy, which he started in 1948. In the 1940s and 1950s, West Point was the most well-known and prestigious United States military commissioning program. Cadets at the academy received a fully funded four-year college program, including tuition, room and board, and even medical and dental care, all provided by the U.S. Army. The advantages of West Point didn't stop there. The Military Academy also boasted a gorgeous 15,000-acre campus, which cadets made the most of when undergoing their rigorous physical fitness training. West Point was especially well-regarded at the time of Cox's attendance because many of America's World War II heroes had attended the Military Academy. President Eisenhower, General MacArthur, General Bradley, and General Patton were all West Point graduates, just to name a few. Richard Cox excelled at the university. He was comfortably in the upper third of his class, and he was the highest-ranking member of West Point Company, Company B-2. Cox also was involved in on-campus life. He was a member of West Point's cross-country team, and he had joined West Point's track team just a couple months before his disappearance. At the time of his disappearance, Cox appeared to be a bright, well-adjusted young man with a promising future, which, of course, begged the question, what could have possibly happened to Cox when he failed to return home on the evening of January 14, 1950? While it might not look apparent on the surface, Cox was acting a tad bit peculiar in the weeks leading up to his disappearance. He'd started complaining to his roommates that he was growing bored at West Point, frustrated with the monotony of life as a cadet. Things began to get a little more interesting on January 7th of 1950, one week prior to Cox's disappearance. That afternoon, Cox received a phone call from a man claiming to be his old friend. Company B2 orderly room. Cadet Haynes speaking. Yes, uh, hello. Do you have a fellow named Richard Cox in your company? Sure do. Most of the cadets are out right now. It being a Saturday afternoon and all. I'm the only one unlucky enough to catch CQ duty and get caught inside. That's that's fine. Uh, can you take a message? I'd be happy to. When Cox comes back, tell him to come on down to the hotel. Should I specify which hotel you're staying at? That won't be necessary. Are you sure? He'll know what I mean. 
If you say so, buddy. And who should I say called for him? Tell him George called. He'll know who I am. Whatever you say, fellow. Are you sure you don't want me to take down your surname or anything? I said he'll know who I am. Oh, Richard. Someone just called for you. A fellow named George. George? That's what he said. Huh, that's strange. Why is that? I don't know anyone named George. Although Cox apparently didn't know who George was, he decided to meet him for dinner on that very same night. When Cox met up with George on campus, it appeared to several other cadets that Cox did know the man he was dining with after all. The contradictions of the situation felt a bit off. Several cadets in Cox's company recalled seeing Cox chatting and shaking hands with a man who was dressed in civilian clothing, a man they had never seen before. Cox's peers described his visitor as taller than Cox, around six feet tall and clean-cut, wearing a coat and a tie under a light-colored topcoat. According to Cox's company mates, the two men appeared to be glad to see each other, One cadet even recalled overhearing George teasing Cox good-naturedly about how he looked in his cadet's uniform. Everything appeared to be normal between Cox and his visitor on the evening of January 7th. However, later that evening, when Cox signed back into his company logs at 7.15 p.m., things started getting strange. After talking to him for a couple minutes, Dean Welch and Joe Urschel realized that he wasn't his usual self that night. He was uncharacteristically inebriated, so much so that he actually fell asleep at his desk with his clothes and shoes on. And then things only got stranger. Cox apparently woke up around midnight and appeared to be totally disoriented. Alice? Dick? What are you doing awake? Who's there? Who's down there? Is it you, Alice? What are you doing, Richard? Who the hell is Alice? I just, uh, I, I have to go to sleep. The next morning, Sunday, January 8th, Cox's friends asked what had happened to him. Cox's answer was more than unsettling. The guy I was with, he was in my outfit in Germany, right? He was a ranger, but a real oddball. Had a bottle of whiskey in his car and locked me in until I had some. I drank so much we didn't even get to dinner. Then, after a few rounds, their interaction got even more morbid. Told me he used to emasculate the Germans he killed. Also said he lived with the girl in Germany, got her pregnant, then he hanged her. After all that, George made Dick promise to meet with him again the following week. But that was apparently all that Cox said about his dinner guest and his plans. By the time the next Saturday, January the 14th, rolled around, Cox seemed to have forgotten all about his plans with George entirely. As Cox and his roommate Dean tried to decide what they would do with their Saturday, Cox seemed bored, even stir-crazy. Can you believe our good luck? What, that your civilian clothes just got dropped off from the cleaners? No, that my civilian clothes got dropped off from the cleaners a day early. You'll have to catch me up. Why exactly is that so lucky? Well... I'll have to put the clothes in storage on Monday, of course, before our next inspection. But right now, they're still available, and it's a Saturday night. What do you say we put them on after dinner and slip out to Newburgh for a proper Saturday night? I don't know, Dick. You know we're not allowed to go off campus unless a guest signs us out for dinner. 
So you're saying you're chicken? I'm just saying we'll be in for some major demerits if we get caught. Come on, Dean. Don't be a wet rag. Besides, even if we didn't get caught, you've got a couple of inches on me at least. There's no way one of your suits is going to fit me. That's true. Good idea, though. I just wish there was something we could do to liven this place up a bit during this gloom period. Cox's roommates, Cadet Joe Urschel and Cadet Dean Welch, had both described him as a rule follower. So why this sudden interest in sneaking off campus in civilian clothing? One possible explanation is that the period between winter and spring break was known to be a particularly difficult time for West Point cadets. They referred to this period as the gloom period, first of all because it was so cold and dark in New York this time of year. Also, after spending the holidays with their families and loved ones during the winter break, cadets often felt extra lonely and isolated. Cox might have felt especially lonely and affected by the gloom period because he'd just gotten engaged to his fiancée, Betty Timmons, over the holidays. So, after it became evident that Cox and Welch wouldn't be able to sneak off campus, the two decided to head to the fieldhouse to catch a basketball game against Rutgers. According to Welch, Cox appeared to be his usual self during the game. When the final buzzer sounded at around 5 p.m., Cox split off from Welch. He told him he wanted to check his grades and would meet him back in their room. Cadet grades were typically posted in the hallway to the central barracks compound on Saturdays. So as of around 5 p.m. on Saturday, January 14th, Cox didn't seem to have any plans for the evening. Or if he did, he wasn't telling his roommates about them. But by 5.45 p.m., Cox was signing out of Company B2's departure log, which meant that something must have happened to him when he went to check his grades that changed his mind. Because when Cox returned to his room around 5.15 p.m. on the evening of Saturday, January 14th, he suddenly was readying himself for an evening out. An evening out that he would never return from. We'll get more details on that night after this. Now back to the story. On January 24, 1950, Richard Colvin Cox split off from his friend Dean Welch in order to check his grades. Cox had been acting antsy all day, and when he returned to his dorm, something had appeared to have aggravated that anxiety. Grades look okay? Yep, all squared away. Say, where are you off to? You aren't going to that hop, are you? As if. Betty would just about murder me if she caught me dancing with other girls. So where are you heading? Just a dinner. With who? An old army buddy of mine from Germany. Didn't you meet an old army buddy from Germany last Saturday for dinner? I suppose I did. Same fellow, actually. Two Saturdays in a row? You must be pretty close with this guy. Eh, not particularly. I actually can't say I care much for him. Frankly, he's taking up way too much of my time. Then why bother meeting him in the first place? I can't really think of anything better to do tonight. Can you? The picture Cox's roommate painted of him was of a young man who was bored, listless, and eager to get out for a Saturday night on the town. Urschel and Welch even described Cox as slightly disgusted at having to spend another night with George, but his desire to get off campus outweighed any reservations he might have had. However, when he didn't return that night, Cox's hesitation started to be cast in a new light. By the next morning, Sunday, January 15th, 
when Cox had still not returned to West Point, officials began to come to terms with the realization that Cox hadn't just had a little too much fun on a Saturday night. He was missing. Missing persons are always unsettling, but it was especially unusual for a cadet to disappear from West Point. Because in exchange for free tuition, cadets at the military academy were required by law to serve in the U.S. Army for a minimum of five years. This law was important because it meant that when Cox failed to return to his company in January of 1950, he was also breaking the law. But before they sounded the alarm, West Point officials first searched for a logical explanation for Cox's disappearance. Is this Minnie Cox? Yes, this is she. This is Major Henry Harmeling Jr. I'm in charge of your son's company over at West Point. I'm sorry to bother you so early. I'm afraid I have a bit of disturbing news. It's your son Richard. He's been missing since yesterday evening. My Richard? No, no, that's not like Richard at all. There must be some sort of mistake. I assure you, ma'am. Our company logs are quite thorough. Richard hasn't been seen since yesterday evening. I wanted to reach out to you and make sure you hadn't seen him or heard from him in the past couple of days. I certainly haven't seen him. But you've heard from him? I did receive a letter in the mail from him a couple days ago. Did he happen to mention anything that seemed out of the ordinary in any way? He said he missed his fiancée Betty, but other than that, everything seemed to be fine. I can't imagine what could have possibly happened. Major Henry Harmeling Jr., the man in charge of Richard Cox's company at West Point, first decided to call his mother to look for anything that might be of use. The conversation with Minnie Cox failed to shed any light on Richard Cox's mysterious disappearance. Next, he ordered Lou Bryan, the cadet in charge of Company B2's quarters, to search all of the rooms in the company. Although it seemed unlikely, Harmeling hoped that perhaps Cox might have slept in the wrong room. In addition to inspecting every bed in the company, Brian also looked for Cox in the extra storage rooms in their wing, on the off chance that he was locked inside by mistake. But this search also failed to yield any results. By this point, it was 8 a.m. on the morning of Sunday, January 15th, and more than 14 hours had passed since anyone had seen Richard Cox. Harmeling still was operating without a single viable lead, so once again, he turned to Cox's two roommates for more information. This time, Harmeling was more focused on Cox's dinner companion. What could Welch and Urschel tell him about this fellow? Unfortunately, the answer was not a whole lot. They'd never met this mysterious dinner companion. In fact, they didn't even know his name. Cox had simply referred to the man as my friend. It struck Harmeling as somewhat odd that Cox's roommates hadn't asked for his companion's name, but both Welch and Urschel explained that Cox was a very private person. He was a good roommate, and they considered him to be a good friend, but Cox tended to keep things close to the vest. One thing Welch did recall was that Cox didn't seem to be at all fond of his visitor. Cox hadn't wanted to go to dinner with the fellow, and he'd complained that the man was taking up too much of his time. Cox also said his visitor was a braggart and a bad apple. Remember, the visitor had even gone so far as to boast about having murdered a woman in Germany. 
When this news broke, it suddenly seemed as if Cox's disappearance was cast in an entirely new light. Colonel Paul Harkins. Harkins, it's Harmeling. We got a bit of a, a situation on our hands. What is it? There's a cadet in Company B2 who's gone missing. Good kid, the number one yearling in all of his company. And I've just heard word that the last person to see him alive may have been a known murderer. Are you saying you suspect foul play? It's been 16 hours now since anyone's seen him alive. Well, you know what they say. Once a person's missing for 48, they're gone. So, what do you want me to do? Well, you better notify the New York Police Department. They should begin a formal investigation. Major Harmeling took the advice and notified the NYPD at once. On January 15, 1950, the formal investigation as to the whereabouts of Richard Colvin Cox officially began. The NYPD's investigators spoke with Cox's roommates, as well as his friends and fellow members of his West Point company. But none of these conversations unearthed any new evidence or even pointed to any new leads. And when Cox still hadn't returned that Sunday evening, Cadet First Captain John Murphy finally made a chilling announcement. Cadet Richard Colvin Cox, a cadet in Company B-2, had now been gone from West Point for over 24 hours and was officially considered a missing person. Anyone with any information about Cox or about his civilian visitor, George, was asked to come forward and share any and all information in cooperation with an official police investigation into Cox's disappearance. By the morning of Monday, January 16, 1950, Cox still had yet to return to West Point and was listed in the morning report of the U.S. Corps of Cadets as AWOL or absent without leave. And the search for Cox, or his body, began in earnest. But it was a search that was easier said than done. Remember that West Point's campus was huge, and it was the dead of winter in upstate New York. The campus grounds were frozen over, and a recent heavy snowfall made the hunt for Cox particularly difficult. But that didn't stop West Point officials from trying. On Monday afternoon, 150 soldiers were deferred from their regular duties and instead told to conduct a massive, intensive sweep of West Point's entire campus. The soldiers searched every building on the academy reservation, every barracks, every warehouse, and every shed. They even combed through the buildings at the nearby Camp Buckner Military Reservation, which were customarily kept locked throughout the winter months. At the same time, special squads of military policemen also searched all tunnels, culverts, and known caves on the campus. When none of these efforts turned up any results, Cox's squad leader and cross-country teammate Tom Strider came up with one of the squad's more far-reaching theories. Strider suggested that maybe Dick had decided to go for a run after his dinner and taken off for the trails without signing back into the company's logs. In the snowy conditions of the trails, Cox might have gotten lost, or injured, or both. This was admittedly a long shot, but at this point the cadets were all quite concerned for their friend, and so several members of the cross-country team headed into the hills, determined to find Cox. Dick! Dick, are you out there? He's not out here, Tommy. There's no way. You don't know that. Let's push forward. Yeah? Then tell me, why would he have come up here? 
maybe he needed to clear his head. I come out here all the time to think. He could have gone for a run at night, uh, gotten tangled up in some branches, and broken his leg. He could be out here right now, fighting off hypothermia. We're going to get hypothermia if we don't head back inside soon. In addition to these search efforts, on Monday, January 16th, the Provost Marshal's office also issued a 13-state alarm for Richard Colvin Cox. They alerted the Missing Persons Bureau of the New York City Police Department and even extended the alert to taxicab companies within the area. At this point, two new investigators were assigned to Cox's case, Marie Kaplan and Joseph Cavanaugh of the 1st Army Criminal Investigation Division. Kaplan and Kavanaugh made a point of checking for Cox at hotels that his roommates reported he had stayed at in the past in New York City, the Piccadilly Hotel and the Astor Club. The two investigators actually believed that they had made quite a break in the case when they discovered that a cadet Cox had in fact stayed in the Piccadilly Hotel the weekend of January 7th and 8th the first weekend that Cox had dined with George. But they quickly were disappointed to learn that it actually was a first-classman, Cadet Malcolm Cox. By Monday evening, a full 48 hours had passed since Cox had first gone missing. And still, all search efforts for him had turned up empty. He seemed to have vanished without a trace. In the absence of any concrete leads or clues about Cox's whereabouts, Kaplan and Kavanaugh turned to mining the thread that seemed the most potentially fruitful. They decided to track down Cox's dinner companion the night of January 14th, the mysterious George who presumably was the last person to have seen Cox alive. But the more they uncovered, the more questions seemed to arrive than answers. These questions forced investigators to consider the possibility that Richard Colvin Cox did not return to West Point on purpose and was trying to not be found. We'll find out more about this possibility after this. Now back to the story. Without any clear leads regarding what had happened to cadet Richard Colvin Cox when he disappeared from West Point on January 14, 1950, investigators began to dig deeper into Cox's civilian visitor, George. If George had visited Cox two consecutive weekends in a row, investigators Murray Kaplan and Joseph Cavanaugh theorized that perhaps he had been staying in a nearby hotel in the area. However, a check of all hotels and motels in the area, both for a guest named George and even for anyone at all matching his description, who had stayed overnight on January 7th, 8th, 14th, or 15th, turned up negative. By the following day, Wednesday, January 18th, the story about Cox's disappearance made its way to the New York Times. In the meantime, Kaplan and Kavanaugh put in yet another call to Minnie Cox to see about an army buddy of Richard's named George or any individual who could match George's physical description. Minnie was quite certain that her son did not have a friend from the army named George, at least not who Richard had told her about and she insisted that she and Richard were quite close. She imagined she would have known about a friend like George. Although later in the same conversation, Minnie went on to contradict herself by telling the two CID agents that Richard was quite private, echoing an earlier statement made by his two roommates. But Minnie did suggest that Kaplan and Kavanaugh might have more luck chatting with Richard's closest friend from the Army, Bud Groner. He might have a better idea of any individual who could match George's description. 
So the next day, Thursday, January 19th, two more CID agents, Paul Elliott and Jim Ryan, went to visit Groner at his home in Langhorne, Pennsylvania. Thanks for the tea. Uh, of course. I appreciate you going through all this trouble to find Dick. I still can't believe he's just disappeared. Had you heard from him recently? Uh, he called me about a month ago. Told me he was thinking of coming to visit me down here in Philly sometime in January. Hmm. That certainly doesn't sound like the behavior of someone who was planning on disappearing. If you're implying that Dick left West Point by choice, that's totally out of the question. There's absolutely no way he'd desert. What makes you so sure? It's completely out of character for him. Dick's always been very rule-abiding. When we were overseas together in Germany, he was never absent without proper authority, even for short periods of time. Speaking of your troop in Germany, the last man to see Richard alive was a man who served in your troop in Coburg. We believe his name might have been George. Does it ring any bells? None. You're certain of that? Positive. We didn't have anyone named George in our troop. It's possible that George was an alias. Can you think of any men who were around six feet tall, Caucasian, and brunette? <sighs> that makes it pretty tough to narrow down. With that description, I mean, it could be almost anyone. Bud Groner promised the two investigators he'd think about which members of their troop in Germany might match the description and get back to them. But with their George investigation looking like it might be a dead end, at least for the time being, Kaplan and Kavanaugh once again pivoted the focus, this time lasering in on Cox himself. Without any traces of a body, was it possible that Cox could have deserted? Kaplan and Kavanaugh spent the next few days at West Point, speaking with Cox's friends and acquaintances, as well as going through his room and personal effects. All of the other cadets at West Point confirmed that Cox was rule-abiding and a limited drinker, as well as popular, well-liked, and successful. And yet another conversation with Cox's roommate reinforced that Cox seemed to relax and at ease on the night of his disappearance. Certainly not the attitude of someone who expected to commit treason and leave West Point forever. However, Kaplan and Kavanaugh did find one potentially disturbing item in Cox's room— an unfinished letter dated January 10th that Cox had been writing to his fiancée, Betty. In the letter, Cox expresses his profound unhappiness at West Point. He starts off the letter by saying, Still goddamn January. Still the GD first part of it. And then, next to this, Cox draws a face, spitting on the words United States Military Academy. Later in the letter, Cox even discusses the possibility of leaving. Asked Minnie what she'd think, or do, if I'd give this place the boot it deserves. Go to a business or insurance school for two years, and then sponge off her until I caught on to the cruel ways of the world. Actually, though, the thought keeps entering my mind, and I've yet to discover what I'll have lost by leaving the dear old core. Cox might have seemed like the perfect West Point cadet to the outside world, but this letter to his fiancée shed an entirely different light on his state of mind. He clearly was unhappy in the military, and certainly had at least toyed with the notion of leaving the army behind. But Cox wasn't the only cadet to become disillusioned with West Point. 
and he wouldn't have been the first or even close to the first cadet to decide to quit the academy and pursue a different career. It's true. There were plenty of legal options for leaving West Point, and there's certainly a distinct line between leaving the university legally and deserting. Cox's friends explicitly described him as a rule follower. Even if Cox were to leave the academy, it seems it would have been much more likely that he would have left via legal channels. Especially because he had friends, family, and even a fiancé who he'd be leaving behind. If Cox had decided to desert, something extreme must have happened to have gotten him to that point. By January 23rd, nine days had gone by since Cox's disappearance, and Kaplan and Kavanaugh had been working on the case for a full week. But still, they were without an official working theory. It seemed possible that George could have murdered Cox, but it now also seemed equally possible that Cox could have left on his own, or with coercion from George. The two agents decided to split forces to try to land definitively on one theory. Kaplan would stay at West Point to try to dig up more information about Cox, and Kavanaugh would go to Cox's hometown of Mansfield, Ohio. In Mansfield, Kavanaugh first met with Minnie Cox, Richard's mother. Minnie told Kavanaugh that Dick was very close with his family, especially his youngest twin sisters, Nancy and Carolyn. Apparently, Richard always found a way to call them for their birthday on February 28th. He even managed to find a way to get through to them while he was stationed in Germany. Minnie gave Kavanaugh a couple of photos of Dick and his friends in the army. She also showed Kavanaugh yet another letter from Richard that he noted as possibly of concern. In the letter, written to Minnie from Germany, Cox expressed reservations about the army and a military career. If I go straight to prep school, I might make out okay. But if I go before a board, I'm afraid they'll discover how much I dislike the army and throw me out. To tell you the truth, I don't want to go to West Point because whether a general or a private, you're still in the army, and I've finally discovered that I don't like the army or any of its principles or ways. So I don't think I'll make too red-hot an officer. I see now that West Point is far from being a bargain. Now for the second time, Kavanaugh had reason to believe that the private, reserved Cox might have been concealing a more deep-seated resentment towards West Point and the Army as a whole. Minnie assured Kavanaugh that, aside from this particularly troubling letter prior to his enrollment, Cox appeared to be enjoying West Point just fine. But Minnie thought that if anyone would know if Cox was considering deserting, it would be his fiancée, Betty Timmons. However, Betty insisted this wasn't even in the realm of possibility. Dick just didn't have it in him. Once, we even started driving to Kentucky to get married over there. But then we started thinking it over, and we finally decided it would be best to just wait and postpone marriage until after Dick graduated. You said you and Dick missed each other terribly. Had you heard from him recently? We wrote each other all the time. In his most recent letter, Dick even told me he was counting the days until spring break. We were planning to get together in New York, you see. He wrote, let me find it. Here we go. We get off at 3 p.m. the 16th of March. Seems like light years away. Does that sound like someone who was planning to just up and leave to you? 
Eventually, when Kavanaugh and Kaplan reunited, they were forced to admit that they still were without a single operating theory regarding what could have happened to Richard Cox. In the meantime, the public now had begun to hear about the case in the couple of weeks since Cox had disappeared. Suddenly, the two CID agents' phones began to ring with various tips. Joe Kavanaugh. Ah, yes. uh, My name is John Perry. I'm calling because I believe I've just spotted the missing cadet you've been looking for. The one who's been all over the papers. What was his name again? Richard Colvin Cox. Where did you say you saw him? Philadelphia, down Market Street, near 16th. I saw a young cadet in uniform walking very quickly. Fast enough that he even bumped into me as he passed me. I see. And was he alone or with anyone else? Let's see. There was someone else who was walking near him, but I'm not certain whether the two were together. Could you describe the two men for me? Well, the cadet was about five foot eight, blonde hair and blue eyes. He was good looking, from what I could see of him. And his friend was a little bit uh, taller, maybe 5'10", and wearing a brown hat and a brown top coat. This is great. Anything else you can remember? Uh, say, officer, uh, I don't mean to be a bother, but did I hear that there was some kind of a reward for information about Cox? John Perry's lead initially sounded promising. The two men he described did sound an awful lot like Cox and George. But Kavanaugh began to doubt the validity of his statement when he began to badger them about receiving payment for any information that he provided. Nevertheless, Kavanaugh did reach out to the Missing Persons Bureau of the Philadelphia Police Department, and the detectives in Philadelphia promised to keep an eye out for anyone matching Cox's description. But as expected, nothing ever came of this lead. And this was just one of many empty tips. Over the next couple of weeks, as the case continued to receive increasing publicity in New York, Kavanaugh and Kaplan fielded a multitude of calls from a variety of sources. Kavanaugh speaking. Yes, hi. Is this the right number to call about Richard Cox? That's correct. I'm calling because I knew Dick back in Newburgh. We actually dated on and off while I was stationed at Stewart Field. Are you still there? I'm having a bit of a difficult time hearing you. Oh, I'm so sorry. It's just a bit loud over here. I'm at a maternity ward in a hospital. I'm about to give birth, you see. Kavanaugh's spirit soared when he heard that Cox had a former girlfriend who was about to give birth. An unexpected child certainly could have given Cox a reason to leave West Point behind. But when Kavanaugh pressed the woman further, it turned out that her phone call didn't relate at all to her pregnancy. She was pregnant, but the child wasn't Cox's. Another interesting tip came from an ex-West Point cadet who had dropped out of the military academy a year prior. Kaplan speaking. Uh, Hello there. I'm calling to report an anonymous tip about Richard Cox. I'm listening. I'm a former West Point cadet, and I ran into Cadet Cox in the dining hall a couple years ago. I remembered our conversation because we're both from Ohio. You don't get too many cadets from Ohio over at West Point. Okay, and what year was this? Uh, Must have been 1948, I believe. Anyway, listen. In this conversation, Cox started telling me that he'd struck his head while he was swimming. Apparently, he'd been suffering from frequent headaches ever since. But he didn't want me to tell anyone, because he was worried that if West Point officials found out, he'd be released from the academy on account of a physical disability. Interesting. 
And how did Cox seem during the conversation? He was, uh, really pale. And he kept blinking. It seemed like something was really going on with him. This was a few years ago, like I said. But who knows if he really did have a disability. Maybe that could have been what made him leave the Academy. When Kavanaugh and Kaplan followed up on this lead, it ended up leading to yet another dead end. A concussion and post-concussion syndrome definitely could have made Cox decide to leave West Point. However, both Cox's mother and fiancé said they'd never heard such a story, nor had any of Cox's other friends at the Academy. By this point, more than a month had passed since Cox's initial disappearance. And still, authorities were without any clear leads or theories as to what possibly could have happened to him. In the meantime, Cox's family was holding out hope that Cox was alive and would find a way to reach out to his twin sisters on their birthday, February 28th. But when February 28th came and passed without any word from Dick, his family finally relinquished all hope of finding Richard alive. As far as they were concerned, if he hadn't found a way to call his sisters on their birthday, he must have been murdered. By March 13th, nearly two months after Cox's disappearance, police were finally able to explore the possibility of Cox's murder in earnest. Because the snow covering West Point's extensive campus finally had melted enough for officials to conduct a thorough search for his body. Remember, West Point encompassed over 15,000 acres of terrain, so this was no small undertaking. The New York City Police Department even authorized a police helicopter to scan those areas of West Point's grounds that were inaccessible on foot. This was an unusual and also expensive commitment to the search for any missing person. And the extensive efforts didn't stop there. Authorities believe that Cox's body likely had been dumped into a lake or pond since it otherwise would have turned up by this time. So police either dredged or drained all lakes and ponds in the area. A New York Times article detailing the search effort called it a backbreaking job involving mountain climbing in miniature and frequent tumbles into snow-filled ravines. But still, even despite their extensive efforts, police came up empty-handed. Provost Howell, you've just finished your search of West Point's entire campus for Richard Cox's body. Is there anything you can conclude? At this point in our search, I am convinced that whatever happened to Richard Cox was foul play. I'm sure that we shall not find him alive. Although Provost Marshal Ed Howell was convinced that Cox was dead, CID investigators weren't so sure. And in fact, this exhaustive search of West Point's campus without any results led Kaplan and Kavanaugh to wonder, what if they hadn't found any traces of Cox's body because there simply wasn't a body to be found? What if Cox wasn't dead? and they weren't able to find him because he didn't want to be found. Was it possible that Cox, who friends and family alike had described as private, was secretly bottling up deep-seated feelings of unhappiness at West Point? Feelings that were so intense that Cox finally felt like he had no choice but to just leave? And as CID agents began to investigate the theory that Cox hadn't been murdered, he'd simply deserted, they found that there was actually a whole bunch of evidence to support it. Well, next time, we'll dive deeper into evidence supporting the theory that Cox was still alive. And if so, what the circumstances could have been that would have forced the rule-abiding Cox to leave behind his friends, his fiancée, and even his family, 
and to go on the run as a fugitive of the law against the American government. You can find Unsolved Murders and all of ParCast podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, CastBox, TuneIn, and your favorite podcast directory. A new episode comes out every Tuesday. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and on Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoy the podcast, the best way to support us is by leaving a five-star review wherever you listen. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. If... We live till next time. Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories was created by Max Cutler and developed by Ron Cutler. It is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Kenny Hobbs with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Unsolved Murders is written by Zoe Broad and stars Carter Roy and Wendy McKenzie. The amazing cast of voice actors includes, by alphabetical order, Jerry Courtney Osteen, Harris Markson, Steve Pinto, Greg Polson, and Daniel Velasquez. Unsolved.